0: He had been four years on the wall. The first time he had been sent beyond, all the old stories had come rushing back and his bowels had turned to water. He had laughed about it afterwards. He was a veteran of a hundred rangings by now, and the endless dark wilderness that the Southron called Haunted Forest had no more terrors for him. Until tonight, something was different tonight. There was an edge to this darkness that made his hackles rise.
1: Before Jar Jar Martin ever conceived of Song of Ice and Fire, he found himself imagining a particular scene. Over and over, it came to him, and eventually, he wrote it down. The scene was of a young boy, son of a lord, living in a very cold place, witnessing an execution for the first time. Then he finds a dead direwolf and living pups afterwards. You know the one I mean. It's now called Chapter One of The Game of Thrones. It was just a seed then, and as George R. R. Martin has often said, there are two kinds of writers, architects and gardeners. So, calling it a seed is... Perfect, because George R. R. Martin is the latter. From that seed grew the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I guess we can be very thankful that his intermuse was so persistent and that he wrote it down. Or watered that seed if you prefer to continue the metaphor. Now obviously that's quite a lot to have grown from one scene. The level of detail went from very cold place to an incredibly developed, deeply considered world with a variety of cultures and traditions, not to mention the rich history that we all love so much. <laughs> now that same depth in the setting is found in the characters. Minor characters have compelling reasons for being who they are and why they are who they are. Now, all these concepts come together right here in the prologue. It's the only chapter that takes place before that original scene. It was kind of cool. Now, we're thrust right away into a vibrant setting and immediately given an insight into how this place works. Through the eyes of a character who turns out to be very minor, indeed. Same as the two he's with. Though at least his companion, Garrod, the one later executed for desertion, can claim to be part of the original scene George R. R. Martin imagined back in the early 90s. A real OG. Uh, OG stands for Original Garrod, in this case. It's even cooler than that, though. How awesome of a character are you if you're the first character ever imagined killed off in A Song of Ice and Fire? Now, he wasn't actually the first one killed, just the first one imagined. Because the first one to actually die turns out to be Sir Waymar. Typical young lordling stealing the thunder of the common man-at-arms. Shameful. Anyway, Will is our point of view, but Garrod, again, sets some key events in motion. His death is not just the first in a long line of A Song of Ice and Fire deaths, it leads to the discovery of the Direwolves, and prompts the dispatching of a search party, a certain party led by Benjamin Stark. So these are major events that begin setting the stage for what are obviously huge parts of the story. The prologue, in turn, sets the stage for that. It isn't a very long chapter, and because it's intense and exciting, it's easy to dismiss as an action scene. But there's quite a lot going on. We just have to slow things down long enough to figure out all the stuff that George has packed into each sentence. And that's a real challenge, because, I mean, consider back when you're reading it for the first time. Who wants to slow down and do all that analysis when you've got some warrior dude about to cross swords with a creepy supernatural being? So, yeah. Very few people are going to slow down and analyze that, which is why we have to reread, And why it's so much fun to do, because there's so much there. It's a rewarding experience. This is why our fandom is so vibrant. And this is why a chapter published in 1996 is still worth analyzing here in 2016. So, hello and welcome to the second ever episode of Aziz Versus Chapter. This is not only an episode on the first chapter, but it's... Our first episode exclusively for friends, donors, and of course, patrons like Jeff Gnarly the Longsnapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, and Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, with Masala a white dragon with green scales, horns, and wings, as you can see. We'll start with the first act. One thing I pointed out in the Kevin episode, with different language, is that it serves as a transition. It takes us from the second act to the third. So I'll just say that now instead, since I didn't say it then. And I use it as a segue to this prologue, which sets up the first act. First acts, by necessity, feature a lot of introductions. Everything is new, after all. You don't know anything about the world you're in. And by the time you read the prologue to A Clash of Kings, second book, you know a lot about Westeros and the story itself. History, traditions, culture, attitudes, characters, storylines, themes... But here, in the actual first pages of many thousands, it's all new. We get our first taste of these things in this chapter, despite it taking place well outside the realm. There are other ways this chapter sets the tone for what's to come. Some themes we all now recognize as omnipresent make their first appearance. Shades of Grey. And then there was nothing to be done for it. The order had been given, and honor bound them to obey. So that's one of the first things we kind of get to understand that there's a code of honor established here. If it's not just for the realm, it's at least attached to these so-called Knights Watch that we're just now learning about for the first time. We learn that all three of them are, quote, sworn brothers of the Knight's
0: Watch. An institution whose members wear black, but as
1: we'll see, behave rather gray.
0: Will had been a hunter before he joined the Knight's Watch. Well, a poacher in truth. Malister free riders had caught him red-handed in Malister's own woods. Skinning one of the Malishers' own bucks, and it had been a choice of putting on the black or losing a hand.
1: isn't that interesting? This guy is a criminal, but he's just shown us that he's driven by honor. The others are huge, and they dominate this chapter, but they might take a backseat to a more important concept. One that is really rare in fantasy, and perhaps in literature in general, which is blurring the line between good and evil. The shades of gray that George imparts to his characters give a sense of realness and understanding of human nature. We're given reason to despise Sir Waymar. He's arrogant, privileged, got his position without earning it, and acts like he deserves it by talking down to men of far greater experience. Garrett has 40 years of experience, will for Sir Waymar himself. Six months. That's it. But the greatness of George R. R. Martin's characters, a facet of A Song of Ice and Fire we're all very familiar with, is right here in these first few pages. It's just kind of underneath the surface because so much else is going on. Will is a good example, but so is the lordling himself. Despite the reasons we're given to dislike Sir Waymar, he does
0: show a solid thought process here. If Garrod said it was the cold, Will began, Have you drawn any watches this past week, Will? Yes, my lord. There never was a week when he did not draw a dozen bloody watches. What was the man driving at? And how did you find the wall? Weeping, Will said, frowning. He saw it clear enough now that the lordling had pointed it out. They couldn't have froze, not if the wall was weeping. It wasn't cold enough. Royce nodded.
1: Bright lad, we've had a few light frosts this past week and a quick flurry of snow now and then, but surely no cold fierce enough to kill eight grown men. Men clad in fur and leather, let me remind you, with shelter near at hand and the means of making fire.
0: The knight's smile was cocksure.
1: Note that his logic is on point. He's not an idiot. Except that he just didn't account for the possibility of supernatural cold, (laughs) right? Whoops. Now, the instincts of the men with experience were more on point than his logic, as it turned out. But it's a difficult thing to argue in the moment.
0: All day, Will had felt as though something were watching him. Something cold and implacable that loved him not. Garrett had felt it too. Will wanted nothing so much as to ride hellbent for the safety of the wall. But that was not a feeling to share with your commander.
1: Bravery is established as a virtue immediately, and fear, as is often the case in a martial setting with martial societies, etc., is to be despised. Sir Waymar mocks Will and Garrett for shirking due to the cold, but soon enough, he too feels it. Will, where are you? Sir Waymar called up. Can you see anything? He was turning in a slow circle, suddenly wary, his sword in hand. He must have felt them as Will felt them. There was nothing to see. Answer me! Why is it so cold? The answer, the them, they felt, is, of course, the others. It appears that this so-called Night's Watch is primarily concerned with fighting against so-called wildling raiders. It's the first time we've heard of them, too. And these wildlings appear to be somewhat primitive from the get-go. Waymar doesn't consider the possibility of magical cold, and the other two fear something. Something. But don't dare name the Others. It doesn't even cross their mind. In, in both cases, because it would seem ridiculous... ...from their point of view. But to the reader, this is where we're starting, so it doesn't necessarily seem ridiculous to us. The Others bring the cold with them. Not, as is guessed at by some characters in the story later, that they come when the cold comes. As you all well know, we still don't know all that much about them, so that's not a hard and fast rule. But it seems to be how it works. But this chapter does stand tall because we learn so much about them that we don't learn later. Somehow, for, for instance, they use that power of cold to kill those eight wildlings. But there's a lot more. We see their swords made of some sort of inhuman non-metal. It's like a crystal shard that's so thin that Will can't even see it at an angle at some points. They have some sort of language. It's not intelligible to humans, but it's recognizable as language. And of course, their association with cold from the start, right here at the beginning, it means that anytime you hear the concept of winter or the thought that winter is coming or that, you know, it's inexorable cold, it's hard to separate that concept from the others forevermore in this story. Anytime you think of winter, you think of the others, don't you? I mean, just think about that, right? It's probably inexorably tied together or inextricably tied together and the idea that can't be stopped is really important too which sounds kind of like the others it's like what is there that can beat them right now the characters don't really know in fact most of the characters in the story still don't even know that they're a threat let's be honest we also learn that they can raise the dead that's pretty scary right (laughs) and but if we're looking at it more from a more subtle point of view what they seem to be doing with the Raising Dead is that they're, in a sense, they're skin-changing into those dead bodies in a manner similar to what is introduced for the Starks in the very first chapter following this prologue when we meet the Direwolves, and soon they start having that magical connection with them that we learn is skin-changing. But that's really what the others are doing here. It's kind of a corrupted version of that. But there's also a connection to the Starks and the others, potentially, as well as arguments against. That's a long raging topic in the fandom. There isn't a lot of evidence for it either way, but one thing that distinguishes both the Starks and the others is is the distinct look, and a lot of that look has to do with the eyes. The Starks frequently have distinct gray eyes. Well, of course, one of the things we know about the others is their distinct blue eyes, and that those same blue eyes appear in the corpses that they animate. Sir Waymar rises with those very blue eyes, having had gray first-man eyes before. Hmm, something to think
0: about. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal.
1: Now note also that these others are described by Will as twins to the first, is how it's written. And you know George loves to play with language? So it might just be a metaphor. They look similar. But if we're getting into that whole topic of do they have a common ancestor, is it the Starks, are they all related to each other, maybe that's why he's characterizing them as twins, because they're literally related. They have a blood relation kind of undescribed and changed over the eons and masked by whatever magic is in play that we can't really describe. So that's a lot going on there, and it's really neat that we just don't have more. This is this information we have. In some cases, we don't have any more information in the later books. Five more books go by, and this prologue contains most of what we know. <laughs> it's really something. So here's here's something uh, that I think is fun. It, try the... It, it's kind of impossible. It's, I'll call it near impossible. Put yourself in the place of this particular White Walker, the one who's about to fight Sir Waymark. For beings that may live a very, very, very long time and may have only recently returned to the world, or if they just recently woke up, rose again, whatever, we don't really know what to call it, but it seems that they've come back to the world through some mechanism. Now, can you think of a reason why the other would maybe slow down and look at Waymar's sword like that? I think it's maybe probably word that it's Valyrian steel. That seems to be the popular... Logic there. The reason he takes a close look at the sword is to check to make sure it's not a special threat. For all he knows, Valyrian steel swords are everywhere now, (laughs) because they've been asleep for thousands of years, right? So that's a really cool little subtle detail. Pretty much impossible to catch in the first chapter when you're reading it for the first time. You haven't even heard of Valyrian steel, right? So, when new, it's impossible. Literally impossible to know what's going on. Now, maybe the biggest reason these setting-oriented details are easy to miss Is because of the obvious and overwhelming sense of foreboding. The scene demands your attention in other ways, so lingering on details is hard to do. There's something wrong here, Garrett muttered. Will could feel it. Four years in the Night's Watch, and he had never been so afraid. What was it? So Will, a veteran, has already thought this to himself, and Garrett is far more experienced than he, and they've been having these feelings for a while. They've been tracking these wildlings for days, and when we first meet them, Several days have passed. They're several days into that search. And this feeling has been with them the whole time. Then, leaving Garrod to watch the horses, they creep onwards and find the bodies missing. Sir Waymar makes a joke that, since we're only a few pages in, we don't know how to take the joke at the time. But it's kind of ironic in retrospect. Royce did not move. He looked down at the empty clearing and laughed. Your dead men seem to have moved camp, Will. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) The the others animated the dead wildlings and marched them off somewhere. So this notion, of course, doesn't occur to Sir Waymar. So it's easy for him to tell himself that Will was lying. And he, because he didn't see the dead men there with his own eyes. But the readers know for certainty that Will is not lying because he's our point of view. We know, and we see inside his head, he's not lying. And his terror is real
0: and palpable. Will's voice abandoned him. He groped for words that did not come. It was not possible. His eyes swept back and forth over the abandoned campsite, stopped on the ax, a huge double-bladed battle ax still lying where he had seen it last, untouched, a valuable weapon.
1: The weapon's presence makes sense later and making sense of it becomes terrifying. The tension grows anyway though, despite that reveal being delayed. Now, Song of Ice and Fire makes me feel a variety of emotions, but only the others can tap into that that sense of primal terror. I got a chill the first time I read the prologue to A Storm of Swords, because we finally get a hint of the others after so long, after that long layoff. And this prologue sets all that up. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt and hard as old bones with flesh pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new fallen snow. There, black as shadow. Everywhere dappled with the deep gray green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. So what do you get out of that? Shadowy. Icy. Graceful. Old. Really old. And the shifting colors, that's interesting too. They seem to manifest in three particular shades. Green... White and black. Does that sound familiar? It should. Those just happen to be the colors of Danny's dragons. I don't think that means anything. I don't think he's. it's an intentional parallel. It might be, though. And I did always think it was interesting that George went with the more muted colors for the dragons. No silver or gold or red. In history, there are some like that. There's a famous red dragon. There's silver and gold. Those were those were out there. But the ones in the Song of Ice and Fire proper, not so much. He went with the muted colors. He may have been thinking of the parallel. It could be a coincidence. I lean towards coincidence, but hey, it's your, it's, everyone's interpretation is valid here. We, we don't know yet, if we ever will.
0: They emerged silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, five. Sir Waymar may have felt the cold that came with them, but he never saw them, never heard them, well, had to call out. It was his duty, and his death if he did. He shivered and hugged the tree and kept the silence. In its hand was a longsword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into forging that blade. It was alive with moonlight translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor.
1: Yet despite the otherworldliness, we are clearly meant to see the familiarity here as well. These are humanoid creatures carrying swords and wearing armor. A child's snow knight is a quote that comes much later in the series as an offhand comment made to Sam. But really, they are a lot like knights. Five of them hold back. It's almost like a bizarre form of chivalry. They don't gang up on Waymar. They don't six-on-one him. They one-on-one him and wait. So there's an intelligence and restraint, and that's even more scary. They're not just mindless killers. The one that Waymar is fighting also eventually speaks. And though his words are alien, his gestures and tone are human enough to be recognized for what they are. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. Sir Waymar Royce found his fury. Waymar has just been wounded... And that may be fueling his fury, but I suspect he feels the insult even more, even though he, like Will, cannot understand the words being said. Sir Waymar had already shown himself to be very prideful, so i that's why I think the insult mattered more to him. And he's a young kid. You know, that's just how young Westerosi are, very easy to insult. So I think that's what bothered him more. But it's really interesting to know either way. And... It's also interesting to note, and this is one of the reasons he's a a kind of a grayish character, despite being kind of bumbling and naive, but also smart. His courage is particularly notable. Had Will lived much longer, he may have had at last found something to respect in his commander. But of course, he didn't live much longer at all. Now, let's discuss baiting the tropes. It's a trope! You know, from Admiral Akbar. That's a famous Admiral Akbar quote, right? Isn't that what he said? Hmm. I think that's outweighed anyway. Now, yet another reason to reread is that the prologue takes on new meaning when you view it through the lens of having read the rest of the story. There's a lot of things that look like standard fantasy in this prologue that later you realize hey, not so much. George puts down tropes like Randall Tarley puts down Sam thoroughly and cruelly. <laughs> but it takes time to set those things up right? You can't just do it right away. You got to build the trope up and let it go for a while before you tear it down. It isn't terribly cruel to kill a character you just met. After all, you haven't got to know them. You got to bond with that character, especially when you don't see it coming. We probably put up our guard after Ned was executed. Before that, we didn't know what this author was capable of. (laughs) Now, some of these fantasy tropes set up in the prologue are still in play and may remain whole. He doesn't break down every trope, That would be a trope in itself. It would be predictable if he just broke them all. Quite a few work really well for him, and he makes use of that. I mean, there's a reason they're tropes in the first place, because they work. Obviously, there are very recognizable fantasy elements like knights and dragons and things like that. White, you know, W-I-G-H-T. That's just another name for zombie in this setting. Other fantasy stories have made a distinction between whites and zombies, uh, anyone who used to play Dungeons and Dragons recognizes them as very different creatures, <laughs> for example. But in A Song of Ice and Fire, functionally, they're pretty much the same as zombies. There's no real difference that I think is important to point to. So, call it what you want. The story calls them whites, and that's what we should call them. But really, if we're getting down to it, they're just walking dead. <laughs> other than the blue eyes, which is all the rays dead. You know, that's the, really the only other difference they have. And, frankly, a prologue where monsters kill people... That's been done a million times too while we're at it. One cool meta reversal he does relates to that description of the others, though. In particular, that they're white. Not W I G H T this time, I mean the color. <laughs> while the Night's Watch is in black. Hey, that's kind of nice, right? The bad guys are in black, and the good guys are in white. Well, forget the fact that the Night's Watch is actually kind of gray, but in this prologue, they're clearly the good guys, if anyone is, because it's not the others. <laughs> So, when you go back and reread this chapter, it's an opportunity to see which tropes still exist, which ones are still in play, and which ones George just shredded. You'd probably have assumed that the Others are pure evil, like we just said. They're the black and the black and white side, and you'd be right about that. As an aside, I'm not one of those people who believes the Others are gray. I don't think there's any good in them at all. However, I do believe that they were made by the Children of the Forest, And the reasons for that are very gray. The moral grayness comes in their creation and those that created them, not in the others themselves. In other words, there's a lot of nuance in their origin, but not in their purpose, at least as far as what we know now, and at least as far as humanity is concerned. Even more so, the zombies slash whites that they animate, who we have seen do nothing other than attempt to kill humans, (laughs) or succeed to kill humans. On the other hand, you would absolutely not have guessed that it would be well over a hundred chapters before we saw the others again. (laughs) That's really how much it is. Over a hundred. You would also not have guessed that this first chapter after five books contains more others, six, than all the uh, others combined. Yeah, that's kind of hard to say, isn't it? The point is that there's more others in the prologue than all the other books put together. Wow. Wow. I think the dam, in that regard, is going to burst come the Winds of Winter. I think we're going to see a lot of others then. But the point remains. The trope he did wind up breaking. Yes, the Others and Whites are not the most original thing George R. R. Martin has done. But the way he uses them in the story, that's what sets A Song of Ice and Fire apart. They emerge from the shadows, and I wish there had only been four. Yeah, because then they'd be four shadows. Ugh. Hear, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that one. That was really terrible. Let's move on to foreshadowing and the familiar. This chapter starts to set up the plot, the setting, and introduces us to the mysterious bad guys. Also, a few names and some context that become clearer later. We learn about the Wildlings, that they're primitive, that they're raiders, that they're enemies of the Night's Watch. And I guess of the realm in general, you could probably have figured that out. We learned that there's some guy named Maester Aemon, who's kind of a wise man, will... Ex- that He's the first one Will thinks of when he's thinking of who's going to make sense of all this. We learn of someone named Old Bear Mormont, who's in charge. That obviously becomes clearer later. We learn the names of two houses. Royce, of course, is the first one. And we also learn of Malister, because that's where Will is from. He's not a Malister, but that's where he was arrested. And we hear Waymar make the call Sport Robert when he's fighting the others. So... We kind of learn who the king is. We don't know who that is at the time, but once the name Robert comes up later, we're like, oh, that's who he was talking about, Robert Baratheon, the king. Okay, yeah. Now, also, we're introduced to several themes that manifest in Westerosi culture and or George R. R. Martin's writing style. The two are intertwined. The first one I'm, I'm going to talk about is mocking disbelief. Do the dead frighten you? Sir Waymar Royce asked with just a hint of a smile. That's pretty (laughs) ominous in retrospect, isn't it? I mean, the dead should frighten you when they're walking and trying to kill you. So yeah, they do frighten me. Blue eyes on dead bodies? Yeah, that's that's scary, right? (laughs) So, but Sir Waymar's sentiment, this sort of scoffing, this mock, mocking disbelief, this term I'm using, is repeated many times by many people, including intelligent men like Tyrion. It's not just for the naive. (laughs) Mocking the supernatural, comparing the idea to creatures imagined for the purpose of scaring children, like Grumpkins. They just put the idea out in general. is just just a lot of that whole thing, the whole poo-pooing of the supernatural. Which is kind of funny, because this is clearly a world where the supernatural is real. It's just that certain forms of it have been out of human mind for so long... It, it's become far fetched. But here we are again. Even now, with five books in the books, <laughs> most of the realm would still probably laugh at the idea of The Walking Dead. Like, let that sink in for a second. We are completely comfortable with the idea. We saw it in the prologue, it's been with us the whole time. But 98% of every character you can name would still probably find the idea ridiculous, even now. This far into the series. That's just how far we've gotten, and how far we haven't gotten. Now, again, I think the Winds of Winter is going to be the turning point in that regard. I think a whole lot of people are going to learn. Winter is coming. It's getting to the south. Things are happening. The wall is extremely weak. So, I think it'll be undeniable when they're in Westeros and witnessed by thousands. The stories will be too many to deny, which is why the dragons started to become believable. Maester Pycelle says, too many stories to deny. Too many tales. We're hearing it from too many people, and that's what turns, tips the scales. That said, the idea of the others returning is a lot harder to swallow than the idea of dragons returning. The dragons died out less than 150 years ago for, you know, counting. The others supposedly haven't been seen in what, 8,000? A bit of a difference there in scale. So yeah, give or take an eon. Either way, the amount you're giving or taking is far vaster Than the length of time dragons have been gone. I mean, they're skeletons of dragons. There's no way you can ever convince somebody that they weren't real. They're written about in the history books. The others, though, there were no history books when they were, there's no writing when they were last around. At least there's no writing that survives anyway. So the bottom line is that this disbelief is going to be strong, but it will eventually be overwhelmed by harsh, cold reality. There are a few other familiar phrases and ideas that we get introduced to in this first chapter. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a fire.com here. It's a really useful tool and we certainly use it plenty. It's actually, this is kind of a funny time to bring it up because you use it less when you're only looking at one chapter. But we didn't just look at one chapter. We did pull some quotes from other chapters because they relate directly to some of these events, as you'll see coming up. Another example of a familiar phrase, a cold wind was blowing, or the cold winds are rising, that kind of thing, or same as the, the pack survives, the lone wolf dies, that kind of thing, and the howling of the cold. These are all very common terms, and they start here in the prologue. This other phrase as well. He was a veteran of a hundred rangings. We hear that kind of thing. A hundred is just a number they throw out. He was a veteran of a hundred battles. He was a veteran of a hundred this and that. That's just something you hear a lot. A hundred or a thousand. It's just a generic term that gets thrown out. And finally, I'm going to go with one that's even sneakier. The other's Perry was almost lazy. That happens when he's fighting Sir Waymar. And that indicates... That someone is overmatched badly and that they're in big trouble. And it comes up a lot, you know, contemptuous, swept aside with contemptuous ease, that sort of thing. Whenever you see that, you know someone's in trouble. Sir Waymar himself is actually chock full of sarcastic, foreshadowy lines, which is kind of interesting, considering that he's portrayed as this naive kid who doesn't know much. But his lines don't seem sarcastic, or they do seem sarcastic. They don't seem very foreshadowy at first, but looking at it again, this is full of it.
0: My mother told me that dead men sing no songs, he put in. My wet nurse said the same thing, Will, Royce replied.
1: Never believe anything you hear at a woman's kit. There are things to be learned, even from the dead.
0: His voice echoed too loud in the twilight forest.
1: Sam and John and others certainly learn from the dead. Bran and Mira and Jojen learn from the dead as well, cold hands in particular. But yeah, none of them sing any songs. I'm glad for that thankful you don't sing, dead people. You could say I'm grateful, dead people. Okay, here's a section called Heirloom Seeds. Yep, seeds again. We're running that metaphor back. Some of the things George imagined from that first scene, the execution in the snow, are set up in this prologue, starting with the idea that it would take place in some kind of harsh winter environment, which clearly this prologue delivers that setting quite well. But it's more than just the setting. He wants to deliver that cold theme, which he quickly accomplishes. He starts us well north of the wall, a phrase we quickly associate with freezing temperatures. Not just the wall, but north of the wall. When you think of north of the wall, it conjures up all kinds of things that we all well know by now. But he also starts tying these things to the supernatural. There are some enemies of fire will keep away, Garrod said. Bears and direwolves and other things. He also has Garrett deliver a speech so well made that even Sir Waymar refers to it as eloquent and only half sarcastically. <laughs> I saw men freeze last winter, and the one before, when I was half a boy. Everyone talks about snows forty foot deep and how the ice wind comes howling out of the north, but the real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you quieter than will, and at first you shiver and your teeth chatter and you stamp your feet and dream of mulled wine and nice hot fires. It burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up, and after a while you don't have the strength to fight it. It's easier just to sit down or go to sleep. They say you don't feel any pain toward the end. First you go weak and drowsy, and everything starts to fade, and then it's like sinking into a sea of warm milk. Peaceful, like... So the nature of cold and the physical and psychological effects it has on a person are explored early on. These are things George really wants us to know right away, and hardly need to explain why. The cold is obviously a huge part of the story, and the farther we go, the more important it gets. And that bit about giving in to the cold, man, that really comes back big time. Getting drowsy and dying peacefully, it's exactly... How Sam feels when he's fleeing the Fist of the First Men two books later in his very first POV chapter. Samuel won a storm of swords. Why won't they let me be? I just need to rest, that's all. To rest, and sleep some, and maybe die a little. Like Sam, Garrett's speech is a harbinger for an appearance of the others, bringing that same extreme cold with them. Like Sam, Garrett escapes. Will and Sam have a few things in common, too, but escaping the others is not one of them. Now, there's a pattern started right here in the prologue, too, speaking of Will. The pattern of doom! The fate of prologue and epilogue characters is well known. You guys know that by now. But also, there's the POV structure itself. A common theme among all the POVs, regular or pro-slash-epilogue, is that they very often play the role of largely or completely helpless witness. Sam again comes to mind. Sansa, Bran, even Ned when he's in the dungeons with his children's lives at stake being used against him. Many of these characters' stories are told from within, like via their thoughts, their inner thoughts, their mind, and their internal conflict, something George loves to write about, and in other ways they are often reduced to the role of Watcher. Now, how perfectly is this on display in the first chapter? Will's job is to be a Watcher, and that's what he is. He was honor-bound to obey, honor-bound to do his duty, but helpless, despite this near-overwhelming, unexplained desire to flee. He is then ordered to climb up the tree to be, ordered to be, a Watcher. (laughs) It's just really perfect. So, at last, though, his fear overwhelms his sense of duty, and he says nothing when the Others emerge from the shadows. Sir Waymar's demands for answers from Will go unanswered. He only watches. Now, eventually, he climbs down after waiting and thinking the danger is past. He sees the unmoving body of Sir Waymar and the broken sword and knows that what he's just watched needs to be told. But the watcher had been watched, it seemed. As soon as he turned his back on the corpse, it rose. And though the timing is surely intended to be, in part, dramatic effect, it does kind of indicate the Others knew he was in the tree and just waited him out. Or does it? It might mean that. It, this could be wrong. It, it, it could be instead that the Others can set corpses to rise on some kind of trigger or something. I don't know what term to use. That's, we'll have to go with that. Think about Bran and Mira and Coldhand showing up at the cave of the Three-Eyed Raven. The Whites just burst forth from beneath the snow. I don't think there was another nearby for that one. Now, of course, there's also the case of Othor and Jafer Flowers, who were in the party that went to search for Waymar with Benjamin Stark. those bodies were carried through the wall, only to rise in the night to attack very specific targets. They didn't just rise and wreak havoc. One went after the Lord Commander, and the other went after the acting First Ranger. Jafer's body even used a weapon. It drew the dagger from his belt. And killed him with it, which is, I think, the only example in all the books of a white using a weapon. It's an idea that a lot of us maybe didn't realize because the whites use weapons a lot in the TV show. And, you know, just visually, that just is kind of what we're used to. But if you look, pretty sure that's the only example in the entire books of a white using a weapon. The possibilities are endless. The fandom is full of theories, of course, as for other ideas of what's going on here. Waymar himself is from an ancient line with King's blood. Did that interest the others here? I'm guessing no, because they just left his body behind. But they did each wet their strange, pale crystal swords with his blood. After he was basically dead, they all just got in circles and just, they all, you know, butchered him six at a time. So that was a little odd. Is it also a possibility that they were hoping Benjamin Stark came? They wanted to draw him out. That's what they were looking for. And that's what they had in mind by baiting this other party. Because, as we've shown, the others were toying with Sir Waymar and Garret and Will. There was something else going on here. So, if that's what their goal was, well, they came out ahead on that one. They got Benjamin, I guess. But again, none of this is clear to us in our first read. We don't know any of this when we're reading the prologue for the first time. The clues all come later. But the others immediately display that intelligence and cunning. That we know from the start. The way they move those bodies? It's just creepy. But they did it in a very specific way. They waited for Will to see the bodies. Then they moved them. And they followed these guys for days. For days. And that's why Garrett and Will just had this overwhelming sense of dread because it had been with them for days. The others work in mysterious ways, to be sure. That seed started here, though, and is still growing. They're still quite mysterious and still quite capable of driving people to madness, I would think. Now, this is a theme commonly found in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which is a protagonist not being killed, not being tortured, not having physical harm come to them, but being driven mad to beyond a point of recovery by seeing some dark truth about the world that, Nobody else knows or would even believe. So you can see that happening right here. That's what happens with Garrett. He runs off and he's so afraid that he's willing to be executed. He's willing to face desertion. That's just how mad and scared he was. This is psychological cruelty. The others, because they're doing this on purpose. It's exceptional. This is terror by design. And it's worse than a standard, normal, healthy fear of death. I mean, again... Garrett knew what was gonna happen when he deserted, right? The horror is just so unspeakably terrible that, not just the execution, but the shame is preferable to facing it. And we don't have trouble accepting this concept, perhaps because fear and terror are real. We know those things. uh, And we know how primitive and unthinking they can make someone. The others are not real, but they were to him. So let's start our final section here, which we're calling The madness of Garrod. We should start back, Garrod urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The Wildlings are dead. How right he was. The Wildlings were dead, but not dead. Undead. And that is a damn good reason to start back. Garrod's concern here is the first line in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And as we've seen throughout this episode, his fear grows as more and more things just feel wrong to him and to will and we later find out that these two are not ordinary rangers we've been in will's head a while but he didn't live long enough to process what he saw true he had decided to head back to the wall unlike garrett he had no thoughts of desertion so something else may have happened to garrett that is something that garrett saw or experienced that didn't happen to will worth considering right To understand, Garrett, you have to combine what we just discussed regarding fear with the idea that the others are real. That's taking fear to levels we can't possibly fathom. It's an unrelatable experience, right? I mean, there's just nothing in the real world that comes close to this. And the more we look at the evidence, the harder it hits. I mean, well, you'll see. This part we're calling as good as any. From Tyrion 3, Game of Thrones. I sent Benjamin Stark to search after Jan Royce's son, lost on his first ranging. The Royce boy was green as summer grass, yet he insisted on the honor of his own command, saying it was his due as a knight. I did not wish to offend his lord father, so I yielded. I sent him out with two men I deemed as good as any in the watch. More fool, I. So to make up for Waymar's inexperience, Mormont sent some of his best. When you reread the scene, realizing that Garrick, a 40-year veteran of the Night's Watch, one who joined as a boy, not because of a crime, the fact that this guy is scared? Well, that fear becomes much more palpable, much more meaningful. He's, he'd lost toes, both ears and a finger to the cold. And he's afraid of it. Right now, like never before. This guy was tough and has known no life but the wall. Now, the old bear way is in again here. This is interesting. From Tyrion three, Game of Thrones, Garrett was near as old as I am, and longer on the wall. He went on, yet it would seem he forswore himself and fled. I should never have believed it, not of him, but Lord Edard sent me his head from Winterfell So something was watching them, they felt it, as I showed in a quote earlier, that something most certainly could have killed them sooner, though, that something didn't kill Garrett on purpose. I'm thinking. Now, killing Garrod would have some benefits. They get another white in the Army of the Dead. But I think his fear has more value. I just went on at length about this man's experience and quality as a ranger. If something scares that man, wouldn't some of his sworn brothers lose a bit of heart too? Right? We later learn that Garrod was the fourth executed deserter of the year. The implication is that Sir Waymar's three were not the first to encounter the others and flee from them which might add to the argument that they're letting a few of them go on purpose to spread this fear. Now, later, Rob and Bran and Theon encounter more deserters with some wildlings, including an important name that we all know. These men and women are frightened and desperate. From Bran 5, Game of Thrones. You want to go back there, Osha? More fool you. Think the White Walkers will care if you have a hostage? No, they won't. Well, maybe they will if it's a Stark, but not enough to let you go. So Garrod was not the first, nor the last, to be scared to the point of oath-breaking, knowing full well that the North is extremely hostile to a deserter from the Night's Watch. There's just no safe havens. Think about the chance they're taking, just how desperate the whole thing is. And for Garrod, it's even worse. He's not a wildling. (laughs) What a thing to give up, though. Forty years on the Wall is to be revered, at least by other members of the Watch and some of the Northern Houses, and maybe a few others around the Seven Kingdoms. Certainly not by Sir Waymar, though. But by, by Dior Mormont, definitely. He knew his worth at the least. And the regard of the old bear is, not, is something to be proud of, right? That's, that's important. And surely many of the other brothers felt this way, too, including Will.
0: Garrod's hood shadowed his face, but Will could see the hard glitter in his eyes as he stared at the knight. For a moment, he was afraid the older man would go for his sword. It was a short, ugly thing, its grip discolored by sweat, its edge nicked from hard use. But Will would not have given an iron bob for the lordling's life if Garrett pulled it from its scabbard.
1: See? In other words, Will has no doubt who would win in a fight between Garrett and Sir Waymar, despite Sir Waymar's edge in weaponry, armor, and youth. Still, this man fled south from duty and brotherhood alive leaving the respect he had earned behind forever. And Lord Commander Mormont left as concerned as he was puzzled. Expecting to survive desertion from the wall, bottom line there is it's just not to be called a calculated risk. It is 100% pure desperation. Mormont would know that too. Which is just going to add to his level of concern as well as to his puzzlement. What the hell is going on? Desperation and madness are often intertwined. Or, as another wise man tells us in Brand 5, The Game of Thrones, Folly and desperation are oft times hard to tell apart, said Maester Lewin. So when you read Garrod's execution for the first time, much of this is not clear. The prologue gives us more of a bottom line, that an encounter with the others and the dead can drive mad even the strongest. But as more we learn about it, it gets deeper. This is no ordinary man. So let's look at what I'm calling the final straw. Returning to his post would have meant sharing the word with his brothers and giving them warning. Despite the outlandish nature of the story, his veteran status would carry weight. Some would at least believe him. But he also would be thinking that it would mean being sent back out beyond the wall again. He'd have to face that cold, hungry darkness all over. That same evil intelligence that didn't kill him when it had a chance is lurking out there and growing stronger. The fact he was such a long-termer may have made the experience worse in some ways, really. If you think about it, 40 years of ranging, he'd never seen anything like this. 40 years of the world working a certain way, until it didn't. Ancient legends came to life, so he ran. And he ran for a while, before he was finally taken and executed. Thus, he would have had time to think about all that, and also about, well, what he saw. But what did he actually see? This is a bit of a mystery. He was left behind with the horses while Will and Sir Waymar went ahead to see the dead bodies. He was not there to see the bodies moved. He never knew that they never saw the bodies or the moving of the bodies. He was not there when Sir Waymar rose. He was probably long gone by then. In fact, Will waited in the tree for a long time. If Garrett did wait, did he see Sir Waymar come for him, maybe? Did he see his one blue eye and his one pale, transfixed by a shard from a shattered castle ford sword? Or did he see the White Walkers, their terrible frozen aura in close proximity? Well, whatever he saw, even when on the execution block, even when Lord Eddard Stark pronounced a sentence of death while holding aloft the great and dark Valyrian steel sword, Ice, it was the others on his mind. So says the man who would take Mormont's place a few books later. A man noted, in this very quote, to be a good judge of such things. From Bran 1, Game of Thrones. The deserter died bravely, Rob said. He was big and broad and growing every day, with his mother's coloring, the fair skin, red-brown hair, and blue eyes of the Tullies of Riverrun.
0: He had courage, at the least. No, Jon Snow said quietly.
1: It was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. Jon's eyes were a gray so dark they seemed almost black. But there was little they did not see. This was fun. Starting at the beginning, I mean. I appreciate it more now, to be sure. It stands out as one of the few chapters that could be called fantasy horror. You know, and it would kind of work as a short story by itself. Just take that chapter, throw it out there, you know, no other story by itself. It would work. But it's better that it's part of a whole. A glorious whole. I hope you've seen how much extra value this chapter has because of what's come after it. So I look forward to reading it again, too, after further books are released and the nature of the others becomes more clear. And I hope you do, too. Just because my name's on this episode doesn't mean a lot of other people didn't contribute to making it. Thanks to Ashaya for the video editing. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and visual goodies. Thanks to Sean. That's Sean of Housebeard, whom you may know as my co-host from our HBO show-only reviews. He helped with voices today. Thanks to Ed Shear of The Art of Geekishness for the Masala Cartho art. Thanks to Yokeboy for audio editing. Thanks to The History of Westeros Bards, Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal. And, of course, thanks to our many patrons who make this episode possible in the first place. Starting with our peers of the realm, the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North, Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Our king beyond the wall is at Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, who recently led, who recently used the Then's natural aggressiveness and thin skin against them, taunting them thoroughly and leading them into a valley where they were pinned by snow and ice and rock. The history of Westeros' small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, and Master of Whisperers. Grand Maester Surya of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki the Alpha Patron Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell Breaker of the Second Stone Lord Skip of the Velt Lord of Castle Ganges Mary Meg Lady of the Bloody Stepstones Gregor the Toasty Lord of the Breadfort Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep Lord Brandon Slate is the North Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall Lady McKella of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Vallant is of Swine Harbor. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemi Snugglebunny is guardian of the Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Grayson Aurelius is the Crimson Angel, Lord of Hell's Calibre. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Our Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear, and is made up of Sir Andrew the Dragonseed Prophet, Sir Dolorus D, Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, Elia of New York, Lady Ola, the Amber Knight, and Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. The History of Westeros Night's Watch is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Leona Kelly, the Lady of Steelhold, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. Now, I want to do something a little special at the end of this episode, not something we normally do, but there's an opportunity for it here. And that is because Season 1 of Game of Thrones stays to the books relatively well, and the prologue stands out as something that they tried to capture, again, fairly well. So I want to talk about, since we have the opportunity, have a little time... Why not discuss the differences and point out some of the things that maybe actually tell us a few things about the books? One thing in particular. Now, in terms of Waymar Royce, they don't give him smarts. They don't give him a shining moment of bravery. Just the youth and the arrogance. Now, I get the lack of obvious bravery. I mean, sword fighting and other that would have been kind of expensive. That would have shown too much, probably. And they do at least get across that he's not a coward. He's not afraid to keep going. He's not intimidated by the fact that they're chasing a larger group than they're in. But some other odd things, they find the bodies all chopped up instead of frozen to death, which is weird, because when they come back, the bodies are gone. What do they do, move the parts? That, that never, that's just kind of weird, actually. Uh, but more importantly, it's Will that escapes and not Garrod. It's, it's a little, you know, it's reversed. So it has a little bit less weight to it because it's the younger guy running away and, and being afraid, rather than the ex- very, very experienced veteran who is somehow so afraid of this that he deserts. But still, it has a lot of impact because we see how big a deal it is to desert the Night's Watch right away. And in the follow-up scene, Ned explains to Bran that Will claims to have seen the White Walkers, which is not something we get in the prologue, or in the Bran 1 in the books. And I like what they do here in the show. Bran cuttingly asks, so he was lying. And Ned cleverly answers, a madman sees what he sees. Which is kind of a dodge, really, if you think about it. Uh, But I think that this is the one thing we can glean or at least feel more confident in from the book prologue versus the TV prologue. The idea that the others were toying with Garrett and with Will and Sir Waymar before killing them and letting Garrett get away. It's not necessarily something that everyone accepts. That there was something kind of toying going on. That they, Especially the idea that Garrett was let go. But think about how it's done in the prologue. It's blatantly presented this way. The other kills Garrod in full sight of Will, cuts his head off and throws the head at Will, and then the next thing we see Will is being captured as a deserter. They clearly let him go in the prologue. He was right there and he wasn't even trying to run away anymore. He just collapsed in the snow, sitting on his knees in fright. Now, especially in the early parts, George explained to Dan and Dave what a lot of these scenes were trying to transmit, what the point was. And a lot of times what the TV show does is it takes something subtle and makes it more obvious. So, If indeed that's what's happening, that's what we've seen here. They took the fear that the others intentionally put into Garrett or Will, depending on whether you're talking about the TV show or the book, and wanted that to spread. And they did that in a subtle way in the book and a very straightforward way in the show. But I think the point is the same, and I think it is meaningful. So we'll have to wait and see what's in store for us in the future whether the others were going to continue to use this tactic of spreading fear. But I think even if they don't engage in it too much anymore, it's already started to work. And as more people in the realm find out that the others exist again and are real, it'll be very interesting to see how that fear spreads through the realm and how that works its way through with all the other plot lines that are happening right now in of Ice of Fire. Until next time,
0: Valar Morghulis.